those who gather with the hope that we have and gather knowing what we wait for in Christ. As we face various challenges and trials, comfort us by your gospel. We pray that you'll be with uh, Martha and Craig as they're both facing some health challenges that are making them uncomfortable and not feeling so well. Uh, Give them a good speedy recovery and good strength according to your gracious working. And as we gather, Lord, we ask that you bless our time, open our eyes, and open our hearts to believe and see wonderful things. Amen. Okay, on our handout today, where we left off last time was reviewing uh, chapter 40 as a whole. So we look through three different parts of chapter 40. So we're going to open today by reviewing chapter 40. It's on the bottom of page 5. Let's review chapter 40, verses 25 to 31. Then we'll review the chapter as a whole. So looking just at chapter 40, verses 25 to 31, we tend to think that God is like us. Can you share some of your favorite pictures in this section, verses 25 and following, which describe how incomparably different he is from us? So scan through those verses just to review where we left off. Chapters 40, verse 25 to 31. What do we see? What pictures do you like here in describing how God is so far different from us in an incomparable capacity? He's perfect for one thing, which we're far from perfect. Sure. He's holy and we are not holy. Creator. Okay, he's called the creator of the you know, the creator of the ends of the earth and the one who has made all things. Certainly, we are the created. He's the creator. How can you compare the two? I don't know. <laughs> he knows all the stars. Okay, yeah, that's a picture, isn't it? That he calls out and knows all the heavenly stars, whereas we're still discovering different aspects of even our own oceans and can't explore the limits of the heavens. He knows them. We're trying to put telescopes in outer space just so we can see some of these stars that God even intimately knows. Or galaxies, yeah. That's just mind-boggling when you get to how vast his familiarity is with his creation versus our infamiliarity. This speaks to me. He will not grow tired. He will not become weary. Right, so there's a contrast of young people get tired and weary, but not God. He doesn't grow weary. So the, the one who never tires, never, as the psalmist says, slumbers or sleeps, that's a neat picture. I think that he's tireless. Kind of frightening when you think of his uh, justice. He has tireless justice and is looking on everything that's done. And yet, tireless is put in this context to don't worry. Why are you wondering, Isaiah calls out, you know, that God isn't aware of your plight. He's tireless. Plus, his awareness is all over. Right. So that, that awareness is... Not just centered in on us, but it's everything that's going on. Even the nations are just a a drop in the bucket to him, or a dust. So incomprehensible power in his tirelessness. You know, this this verse among a lot of others, like in Job and so forth, just when people start saying, well, like debating, you know, arguing about creation versus evolution, uh, a lot of the social issues and everything else going on is like, and people say, well, I think, or I, you know, as soon as they say, I think, well, who are you? What does God say? We don't care what you think. You know, you can't rewrite the Bible. Right. It's like. So the. The previous part of the chapter talks about this especially, right? When it talks about who has taught God or instructed him as his counselor. To say, you know, what I think is, is foolish when who are we to give God advice? Okay, let's look at the next one there. Explain how we can stave off the following thought. Maybe my God is great, but he has his limits, it seems. He might miss something in our life or fail to do something he promised. That'll never happen. 
<laughs> Why will it never happen that he misses something? Okay, well, one, we know he's faithful. We're going to get to that, especially in chapter 42. He's not going to fail to keep what he promised. What do we see here that gives us comfort that he will not fail to do or miss over something? I would scratch off that. Maybe my, I would say, my God is great. Yeah, my God is, and maybe put the word so, my God is so great, he has no limits, right? That's the way we have to express that. And that he won't miss anything and won't fail to do anything he's promised. And maybe someone wouldn't openly confess that, because we know we can't say God has limits, but maybe we'll act that way, right? Or we'll think that somehow God has, as the Israelites were saying, my way is hidden from the Lord, verse 27. My cause is disregarded by God. When you look at his providence, his creation, his preservation, his control over all things, and then even his wisdom, uh, that removes all fears. Um, the next one, then, how does our section, how does this section emphasize that we cannot be saved by our own works? Okay, so we have. So as much as we may try, we're going to grow. We're yeah. trying. Our inability, we have limited strength, limited power. And we will stumble, and not just stumble in strength, but what Jerry's get it, right? We'll sin. We'll stumble and fall into sin. We'll make not only mistakes, but even as sinners turn against God, right? What else do we see in this section that emphasizes we can't be saved by our works? We're saved by grace through faith. Sure, it's by grace. If God is so great and we are so nothing, you know, if the nations are nothing, it must be by grace, not because we've deserved it or earned it in any way. And then you said through faith. Where do we see through faith in this section? Yeah, isn't that comforting? It's not those who have served God faithfully will find renewed strength. No, it's those who hope in the Lord. So that's really faith. Uh, those who place their their goodness, place their source of life and mercy and strength in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord. Good. All right, now let's review the whole chapter. What truths in this chapter do we see? Now, scanning through all of chapter 40, what truths do we see in this chapter about evangelism? We're supposed to go up evangelism. Yeah, where do we see that in this chapter? To speak tenderly. Yeah, already starting with verse 2. So speak tenderly, proclaim, uh, declare good news about forgiveness of sins. Any other parts that are related to evangelism? I'll give you a half minute to scan through more. Okay, verse 3. Make straight the way for the Lord. Yep. Verse 9. Yeah, you who bring good news to Zion, go up. Lift your voice with a shout. So God's urging the messenger to let that be known everywhere. Good. Any other evangelism focus? Six. Cry out. Yeah. God tells us, proclaim. And actually that, that leads into the law, but that opens up the door for evangelism. We're like grass. You know, your your life is short. That's why you need the word of the Lord that endures. Okay? Any other with evangelism? Verse 9. Yeah, yep. So you who bring good news. I would say there's, there's some uh, urgency of evangelism by the, the picture of how short our life is, right? Kind of adds an urgency to it. Or maybe um, when it talks about the idols in verses 18, 19, and 20, right? We need to do evangelism because the idols are nothing. There is no other God, uh, none but the true God. There is no other equal, he says in verse 25. So we, we do evangelism because all the, the hope of the other nations is a false hope that will topple and fall. Uh, a pitiful picture of them trying to construct their own religion. Okay, what do we see in this chapter about the Word of God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Not been told you from the beginning. Yeah. So we got both the natural knowledge, but the Israelites especially, they, they had God telling them the revealed knowledge of God. You know, have you forgotten what God has given you in his word? 
Don't you know who he is? Other things about the word of God? Kind of related to evangelism, the word of God goes through his people, right? He tells his messenger to shout. Um, It's carried by those who he sends with his word. So that's both evangelism and the word of God. God sends messengers to carry his word. Others about the word of God. Okay, so this claims, this, this prophecy that Isaiah shares claims to be divinely inspired. This is not just, you know, Isaiah is giving us some neat, you know, ideas or thoughts. God has spoken this. And if God speaks, be confident in that word. Look for at least one more about the word of God here. It's towards the beginning of this section. Peter actually quotes this when he talks about the word through which you give birth. Okay, the word is centered on comfort, so the, the gospel's there. Yep. God, God wants words of comfort, tender words to be shared. Check out uh, verse 8. The word of our God endures forever. So the kind of a, an ongoing theme we'll see that the idols don't last, but God's word and his promise endures. Finally, how about God's power? How do we see that in this chapter? These are all themes in the chapter. Evangelism, God's word. Where do we see God's power? Yeah. Yeah, God's power in both creation and God's power in providence and preservation of this universe. It's the universe he's really talking about. Okay. Obviously, we can find more on God's power, that he never gets weary, right? How about our source of comfort? Again, we go back to verse 1, where it yep. says, Comfort, comfort, my people. Says your God. Yeah. So our source of comfort has to be found in God, in the, and in the Word of God, and in what God will do. Yeah. The promise of being cared for by God. Not just that he's paid for our sins, but he's also going to shepherd us and gently lead those that have young. So God himself, he is our shepherd. Really, you basically have the theme of Psalm 23 found in this this chapter. Finally, what about man's glory and our false sources of comfort? How is that addressed in the chapter? Or mankind's glory? Yeah, all of them are like grass, so it just chops down the best that mankind can put forward, and it tears it down and says it's nothing. And it chops down the idols that people try to construct, and it says those idols are nothing. And even the strong men, young men, it chops them and it says they run out of strength. No matter what mankind puts forward, its glory is limited, weak, pitiful sometimes, and short. And our false sources of comfort whether it's our own strength or our idols, it will fail. Finally, uh, another thing for review, I wanted to look through this chapter. Find some titles and descriptions of God in this chapter. Let's see if we can break down their significance. Some of them come up for the first time in this half of the book. Titles for God and their significance for us. Yeah, Sovereign Lord is the, some translations will have capital L-O-R-D. It's really Yahweh Adonai in the Bible. Some translations will will put Lord God or Sovereign Lord. Uh, Basically, it's that emphasis that he alone is all sufficient. He alone is the true God. Yeah, so verse 10. Does anyone have a different translation there for verse 10? Yeah, the traditional way to translate that was Lord God. So I believe you'll see that in the King James, probably the RSV. Some older translations will put Lord God. And notice when you see that, it's capital, right? All caps? No, mine isn't all caps. I mean, Lord is capitalized, but the Yeah, so they capitalized Lord to, to help you know that that's the tetragrammaton, Lord God. Literally, though, it just it reads... Yahweh Adonai. 
And then how do you translate that and say that? Because Lord means Lord and Adonai means Lord. So you'd have to translate Lord, Lord. So, okay, sovereign Lord kind of makes sense. I think that's a good way to translate it. Or Lord God is just their way of indicating this is, this is the one who is overall. Well, when you repeat like Lord, Lord, it's absolute. Oh. Like God said, told Moses, tell him I am. Yeah. But it's actually not. There's no other. It's not Yahweh, Yahweh. It's yeah. two words. Yep. But they did God in all caps. Yeah, God is in all caps, which is their way of trying to indicating the tetragrammaton's hidden behind that word. Okay. Yep. The old NIV has sovereign Lord. Yeah, the NIV 84 has sovereign Lord as well, and they kept that in the 2011. I like that approach because then you you capture. Capital G for God, capital L for Lord. That's another way it's done. Yep. Yeah, so when you see that in your Bible, just know they're trying to capture the Tetragrammaton, the Yahweh there, Jehovah, which often is Lord, all capital, but they can't make it say Lord, Lord. Okay? And it kind of signifies power and might. Yes, and you look at verse 10. He rules with a mighty arm. You know, he comes with power. So it, it is the supremacy of God when it, when it puts those two words together. Like would it, even when an aircraft carrier is out in the middle of the ocean, they put that sovereign U.S. territory. Sure. Sovereign U.S. Even though we're out in the middle of the ocean. That, and that, it's moving. The control, the sphere of influence is under, under the Lord, or in that case, under that military vessel. Yep. Yeah. I have a note on says between 9 and 10 and it says his power is literally his arm which is found frequently in Isaiah yeah mighty arm it's it's obviously a figurative you know God doesn't have to set, extend some physical arm down but it means his his strength his working his arm so that, that kind of puts God as the, the force the action not like God is necessarily relying on some other source of strength but he is the actor. Okay, so we got one title for God is Sovereign Lord or Lord God. What's another title for God we find or description here? Let's see if we can break it down. Shepherd. Shepherd, yeah. So definitely, <coughs> we're familiar with that one, right? So he's a one who cares for and tends. Good title for God, and it's God himself is our shepherd. Which verse is that? Sorry, I missed it. <laughs> 11. 11. So there's a description, like a shepherd. you got a metaphor there for God. In verse 25, it says, Holy One. Yeah, Holy One. So we talked about that briefly. Holy One, when we talk about God, it's going to lead later on in Isaiah to the Holy One of Israel. So God himself is the Holy One. He alone is absolute holiness and the source of perfection. But there's also one who's going to be identified in this book which is the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, but he's someone who's born into Israel. That can only be the Lord himself taking on human flesh. So we're going to see more of that as it, as it goes on. Who is my equal, says the Holy One. So is that indicating Jesus? Or? Yeah, how, how Jesus is the, he'll be called the servant in this book as well, but he's also the Holy One of Israel. So whenever you see that title, the Holy One of Israel, think of the Messiah. He's part of Israel, but he's the excellent Israel that Israel never could be holy and perfect. One in Jesus, and Jesus is one in him. Yeah. So far we have sovereign Lord, we have holy one, we have shepherd. Oh, Jacob, in verse 27. In verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? Title for the people of Israel. Yeah, so their, their connection to God, he gets called the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob. In verse 28, it's creator. Creator, yep. So that's another title for God. Your Bible probably capitalizes it. I mean, the, the original Hebrew didn't have difference of capitalization or not, but just recognizing that's the proper noun. He is the creator. And in the Hebrew, you'd have the article, the creator. There's not a whole bunch. Any other titles here, descriptions that stand out? I like the one that's uh, your God. 
So verse 27 can has it. Why is my cause disregarded by my God? And then the Lord calls himself your God. So that, that possessive description, that, that we belong to him, that there's a relationship with us and the Lord as our God. I think that's significant. That takes faith to be able to say that. He's also called the eternal God, or verse 28, the everlasting God, right? All right, good. Now, one more exercise. We want to find Christ. The scriptures talk about, you know, these are the scriptures that testify about me. And it's amazing. When I, was, when I was looking at this chapter, how many times I was able to find this chapter brings out clear pictures of the person and the work of Christ. So I want to challenge us to see if we can list seven times this chapter, at least seven, brings out clear pictures of the person and work of the Christ. Shepherd. Okay, yeah, shepherd. So that's one. Holy one. Holy one, that's another. He who alone is good, Jesus says, God. Verse 2 says, um, Her hard service has been completed, and her sin has been paid for. So redemption, paying for sin, the atonement, that's the work of Christ. He's the one, because it says, from the Lord's hand. You've received from the Lord's hand double for your sin. So yeah, there is the picture of the work of Christ as our Redeemer who made an atoning sacrifice, a payment. Prepare the way for the Lord. Sure, that talks to John the Baptist, right? Who ushered in the way of the Christ coming. So this, this actually is quoted in the New Testament as a fulfillment of the forerunner to the Messiah. Definitely points us to the person and work of Jesus directly. Yeah, uh, you definitely have that is messianic. When, when is all the nations going to see God's glory? Well, Jesus goes to the cross. He says, now the Son of Man will be glorified. The glory of the Lord starts with the cross as he shows his love and pours out his life and is glorified. But ultimately, it's going to come as Jesus who rose is coming again. It's yeah. the work of the Messiah. Every knee shall bow. Yeah, as Paul says, everyone will confess Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You also have the glory of the Lord. That's the, the picture of you know, God signifying his presence at the birth of Jesus. When the angels, it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them and the shepherds were terrified. And from there it spread out, it began. The message of the Messiah had come. So is verse 5, is that about like when Jesus was on earth? Or is that talking more about when he returns the second time? So John the Baptist kind of mixes the two, doesn't he? When he says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it. John the Baptist just says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's gathering this threshing floor. So it, the time isn't mentioned, you know, between his first and second coming. It's fulfilled, you could say both. Uh, it's fulfilled in the person of Jesus, in his work, in the flesh, when he first came, in his earthly ministry, and in his ongoing ministry as he sits at the right hand and comes again to judge. Only is fulfilled in Christ. Yes, we got, I think, three or four already, right? How about 40 verse 9? Here is your God. When, are, when are, is anybody able to say, here is your God, more literally than when they pointed to Christ, when John the Baptist would say, look, the Lamb of God. Here is your God. And the irony, when it said on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, how true that was, that he is their king. I like that, that Lenten hymn, Behold Your King. And 40, verse 10, fulfilled in the Messiah, the Lord will come with strength, leading up to that scene is glory. Um, 40, verse 27, points to Jesus, who is omniscient. Jesus is called in John 1, the creator of all things, so once again reflected in the work of the Messiah. Omnipotent found throughout. Jesus holds all authority, it says, and all power. It's been given to him. According to his human nature now, he rules over all things for our good. And uh, finally, when it talks about being tired and finding strength in the Lord, look at 40, verse 29 to 31. You remember what Jesus said about those who are weary and heavy laden? 
I will give you rest. Yeah. So those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength and not grow weary. So Jesus invites people to find in him what only God can offer, which is spiritual rest for your soul and also eternal life. Any other comments, questions as we finish and wrap up chapter 40? Lots of great stuff in that chapter. Lots of great themes that we're going to start developing as we move forward, too. Okay, why don't we jump into chapter 41? This chapter I've taken under, or at least this section, verse 1 to 20, under the theme, The Lord has chosen his servant. We're going to see, as we read through, I'm hoping we can keep going all the way to the end of Isaiah here. Um, might, we might take some breaks to study some other topics, but we're going to see Isaiah develop this theme of a servant. And we're going to see three or four ways that you can find someone who's titled a servant of the Lord. And God says, my servant who I've chosen. So we have to understand and break down that debate of the servant. So 41... Let's see, why don't we read chapter 41, verses 1 to 3. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at a place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east? calling him in righteousness to his service. He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves the unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. So just looking at especially verse 1, God's (laughs) calling for court to assemble, right? He says, let the nations come forward and speak. Let's come to a a place of judgment, a court. So he's calling them to debate, and it's really like a courtroom setting where they give witness and testimony. And he wants them to debate the question, who is in charge? So who is God calling to this debate, this court scene? Everyone, yeah. So Isaiah, yes, was written first for the people of Israel, but this was meant to go out to all the nations so they can consider these words and think. So the distant nations of the world are are called to give testimony here. Now here, the part of the debate. He's going to call someone his servant. And this is the first time we see in this section of Isaiah 2 the concept of a servant of the Lord being introduced. So look at verses 2 and 3 once again. Who is being called his servant? Somebody from the east. Yeah, so this is someone that the Lord stirred up who, according to the orientation of Israel, is out to the east. So picture yourself, for your direction, be this way. Picture yourself on the map. You're traveling from Israel. God's stirring up someone from the east. Is that the morning star? It's not, yeah, not the Magi. Eventually we'll see the Magi are, are directed from this region. Yeah, so we're, we're talking... The time of Cyrus, which is about 200 years after this prophecy was written. And he's going to actually later on refer to Cyrus by name, so much so that the, when the, the story goes that I think Josephus maybe record this or something, that Cyrus was shown by the people he conquered that it was prophesied by name that he would come. And he kind of liked that, that he was mentioned by name. Babylonian or the Syrians? Cyrus was not a Syrian, so the Assyrians are already on the world stage. There's no thought at this point that the Babylonians would be anything. They're, they're not that powerful at this point. They're very much a, a second-class empire. But the Babylonians will come on the scene. And then after them, so we're talking three empires down the road, the Medes and the Persians. So Cyrus is three kingdoms away yet. And yet God is talking about stirring him up. So, so three kingdoms, 
it was the Babylonians. What other? It's it's actually easy if you remember. It's alphabetical. So you got the Assyrians, Assyrians, Babylonians, and then you could say Cyrus A B C. Okay. Yeah, God is very orderly, isn't he? <laughs> but not Cyrus. It's the the Persians. But still, it's it's alphabetical. Yeah. The the Lord refers to and alludes to Cyrus here, who was sent by God. He says he stirred them up, called him to his service. Yeah, God can use unbelievers. God doesn't have to use just, his servants can't just be his own people. He uses those he chooses. And he uses Cyrus to conquer the empires that came before him. And he's going to specifically mention him by name as his servant. Some people might interpret this as God's reference when he first formed his servant. So as a nation, uh, God got Israel on their feet. But calling them from the east doesn't make sense. If you're going to say this is Israel's God's servant, only Israel's God's servant. No, Israel came from the west. They came from Egypt when they were called out and stirred up by God. So it, it can't be Israel itself. The servant is going to be also mentioned as Israel. So as we read on, Israel will also be called a servant. And you you look at verse 8 here. You, Israel, my servant, whom I have chosen. So we got already from the beginning, there's a servant from the east. Israel is God's servant. Look back in the, the other Testament. Abraham is called a servant. David is called a servant. So individual Israelites, the nation as a whole, are called God's servant. But here, this is different. God is saying, hey, nations, guess who I used as my servant? Someone I spoke of that you never could have foretold. So pay careful attention going forward just how this servant ultimately is fulfilled in the Messiah. It's going to be a singular man who keeps the Lord's will perfectly. And it can't be an unbeliever like Cyrus because it's one in whom God actually ends up saying, I delight in him. I'm going to pour my spirit on him. So ultimately the, the servant that we'll get to has to be the perfect servant, Christ. Look at the description here. So he hands nations over to him, subdues kings before him. Yes, ultimately, Cyrus will do that, but Jesus fulfills it perfectly. And he pursues unscathed against the nations. It turns out when Cyrus conquered the Babylonians, he just marched right into Nineveh and didn't, Babylon didn't have to worry about a single opposition. Uh, the people basically kind of let him in. There was something with diverting the water, but even when he entered the city, he just took it over that night and he was almost with welcome arms received as their new king. So there was no major battle that had to be fought. And that's what God prophesies here. He's gonna, Cyrus is gonna come. And now look at verse four. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first and the last, I am he. So God is calling the courtroom to be his witnesses to say, hey, who is the one that foretold Cyrus, someone like him would come from the east and I would march him along, stir him up, and he'd be unstoppable in his conquering of the, the nations like the Babylonians. Uh, when it says verse 4 and 5, summoning generations from the beginning, I want us to turn, look at Acts 17, 26. So we get a picture of God's working. So often it's focused on Israel. But then we might get the, the false impression that God's only interested or only controls the times for Israel. So let's look at Acts 17, verse 26, where Paul is now going out to the distant nations and, and talking to them about God's working. Anyone want to read that for the group? <clears throat> Judy's got it, okay. I think just 26, unless you feel the context okay. needs more. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Isn't that something? Very close to what he's saying here, right? Yeah. Calling forth generations from the beginning. From one man, obviously Adam, right? Yeah. He made all nations. And then did he just say, okay, nations, go about your own business, and I'm just going to leave you alone. I'm not going to do anything to interfere. <laughs> we also have the control of the flood, too, yeah. 
But even as the nations after Adam or even after the flood scattered about the earth, who was in control? God. Yeah, he, he determined the exact places and times where they might live. So when, when you look at you know, the Phoenicians controlling the Mediterranean Sea, when you look at the Romans conquering and taking over Carthage, and you look at the major battles of history, you can say, well, good thing it turned out the way it did. Or you can, like the Apostle Paul, say, God was in control. He set the limits for nations. He's the one who ultimately said to you know, the, the allied and Axis forces, this is how far you can go. He's the one that said to the nations of the distant past, this is where your limits are. So he can accomplish his purpose. And our focus today is, he's telling through Isaiah, I'm the one that controlled Cyrus. Don't think Cyrus and his God made it happen. I told you, 200 years ahead of time, he's coming. So what do you think? Discuss. God has a plan he carries out for every nation, not just Israel. Well, mm-hmm. we're experiencing it today in this country. God's in control. And people don't like what's going on, but maybe they need to stop it and realize what's going on in this country and it's almost like we're being punished. <laughs> you know? Right. Has God ever had a nation where he would overlook and say, I'm not going to carry out my plan? Uh, every nation is subject to him, including ours today. Now think about the, the Egyptians. God said, I'm going to make my glory come through Pharaoh. Here's what Pharaoh's going to do. And here's what's going to happen. Or think about the Canaanites. He told Abraham, they have only 400 years left. Think about before the flood, 120 days before all nations are destroyed. Think about the Assyrians. He said they're going to be conquered by the Babylonians and so forth. And through Daniel foretold the coming of the Roman nation. Over and over again we see God reminding us he's in control. Uh, Remember what Paul says in Galatians 4? When the time had fully come, God sent his son. But even not... Not scripturally, but you look at the Roman Empire and all the advances they made in civilization and the highways and the roads, the improvements they made, made travel easy for the spread of the gospel. Yeah. God sent the, the crushing army of the Romans to subdue the entire Mediterranean world for his plan. God, you know, conquered all the, the nations of Canaan for the plan he had for Israel so they might inhabit that land and be a separate people. God then had the Roman nation crumble and the gospel spread through his church for his plan. God had the new world discovered and sent people across. Yes, not all of them were faithful missionaries, but he sent his gospel for his plan so that there might be a place like we have today where we can freely share the gospel and prosper. God's plan is carried as we send missionaries and the gospel spreads in other nations. It's just all the history of the world, isn't that comforting? Not just Israel is part of his plan. All right, let's read on. So we have God saying, I called forth. I control nations from the beginning, generation after generation, and I called one up from the east to be my servant, to carry out my service. He's going to later expound on that and name him by name. So, verses uh, 4 and 5, let's see, no, we're on 6 and 7, right? We haven't read 5 yet. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. So they see how God is controlling nations and nations come and go. And their, their only response is, the metal worker encourages the goldsmith. The one who sues with the ham- smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes with the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. Why does God choose to mock craftsmen here? Mock the idols. Mock the idols. Idols turn to dust anyhow. Okay, they'll turn to dust. <clears throat> It takes their own skills to to make an idol. Isn't that ironic? Something that they have to nail so it won't topple down. So we're in the context of God is just saying, I control nations and I control generations and I carry out my plan over the whole world. Meanwhile, idols, they need a plan just to stand up. Right? 
And so when he calls everybody into the courtroom, he's kind of like drawing in, oh, let's bring exhibit number one, idols. Have they ever done anything? Have they ever prophesied any major event that has taken place and had their word come true? They can't even hold themselves up from falling down. So what we're kind of doing is, if you stick with the courtroom scene of verse 1 and 2, let them come forward and speak. The idols can't even speak. They're, they're not able to do what God has done. We could probably pause here. Obviously, the point is how silly idol makers are because they have to fashion their plans for their idol. And they have no idea what the future holds and can't make the idol stand. What type of idols are crafted today? Okay. Possessions, certainly. I think our culture in particular has certain idols that stand out. Mary. Sure. Um, I wouldn't say, they wouldn't call it an idol. They, they, they do venerate Mary, and certainly they treat her like a, a co-redeemer and co-mediator, which is really taking the place of Christ. A lotto ticket. Sure. People, money, you know, that comes into money, yeah. basically money is a big part of our culture for idolatry. If you can just get enough money, win the lottery perhaps, or be a, a famous business person, then, then you'll have it made. So I think that definitely is there. Hollywood? What's that? Hollywood? Yeah, celebrities, right? Stars. Aren't they idolized? When, when a star does something or says something, everybody's looking to see for, oh, what did they do or what product are they using and how is their life going? Stars and celebrities basically are idolized. They, we've replaced the veneration that we ought to be giving God, not just to false religion, but to celebrities and pop culture icons. Think how many people are fawning over someone like Taylor Swift. And they call themselves Swifties, and they adore, and they memorize every single word that she's written. And how much time do they spend memorizing the Word of God? So musicians, stars, celebrities. Also, you could say politicians, right? They're idolized. Anytime someone starts to get into saying that a politician has no faults, or is the answer, or can do nothing wrong, they become an idol. Scientific advancements are idolized, right? How many people aren't spending their life chasing after the greatest technological advancements in a dream of having the best technology? So, you know, Apple, computer, etc. And think about how those idols are constructed, right? How does Taylor Swift become an idol? She has a PR campaign. She has, you know, her music and her distributors. How does a politician become an idol? They have also propaganda, advertisements, and the way they present themselves. Uh, public relation teams will craft their work. They'll put out their message to make this movie star look the greatest. We fashion idols. We tell the people what their itchy ears want to hear. Right, and then as far as the message of those idols, we say, it is good. Listen to what this idol says. It is good. It's not. Sports heroes, yeah, that's another one. How many people literally idolize their sports heroes? And think of what path they're being led down as they listen to them. Okay. So, yeah, God brings in idols here because they can't do what he does, foretell the future. They can't even hold up their own, on their own. They need a plan. They can't make plans. Verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, some translations, Abraham, whom I love, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its further, furthest corners I called you, I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. <coughs> so Abraham, my friend, or as the EHV puts it, Abraham, who I love. How do you know that this title is one you bear along with Abraham? Well, it's supposed to be from him, that father originally. Does God ever call you his loved, his friend? Well, he told him, all nations will be blessed. Sure, because... Because of the promise given to Abraham, 
you're part, yeah, you're part of all nations. Because of the promise given to Abraham, that son of Abraham came, right? The seed of Abraham. Remember what he said, I called you friends. Jesus told us that we are now friends. And we can actually, that takes audacity, isn't it? To say God is my friend. Who would be so audacious to say this supreme God would say I am his friend? But no, he has chosen us. He has taken us to be his own and called us. Uh, Christ has said, I've, I've no longer called you slaves, but a friend. Well, he shepherds us too. And it's not because we deserve it. It's because our good shepherd laid down his life for us. Yeah. So just a reminder that he reconciled us to himself by the cross. And we are now friends of God. And this, this ultimately does get fulfilled not just for Jacob and Israel, but for all the church. Look at verses 8 and 9. What events in salvation history are summarized there? I took you from the ends of the earth. I said you're my servant. I've chosen you and not rejected you. So can you reflect on any events in salvation history that God's talking about? Where did Abraham come from? This is kind of interesting when you look back at the start of this chapter. Abraham was called from the east. He was from the Ur, well, he traveled with Terah, and he came to Ur of the Chaldeans, and he stopped there for a while. So in a sense, some people, when they say, maybe the servant at the start that was stirred up in righteousness and had nations subdued, maybe that is Abraham and his descendants. So you could kind of see it partially saying here, this speaks of the servant being the nation of Israel once again. But we can't ignore when God later on says Cyrus is his chosen one. So both possibilities. I like to say it's open-ended. If you can't limit it for certain, and you can say both fit, I'm happy to say both fit. So who is the servant that God stirred up from the east? It could be both Abraham and Cyrus. God controls nations. Really, Cyrus is still the best interpretation because, yes, God foretold that Abraham's descendants would take over the land. God foretold you know, them taking on Canaan, but he also foretold Cyrus. And that's a bigger picture at this time frame in history. So we got Abraham from Ur, and he gave the promise to bless his descendants, give them the land of Canaan, and made them his own, chose them to be his own. Verse 10, we'll close. I think we're running out of time, right? What do we have for time? Okay, so let's finish with verse 10 then. That's a good breaking point. Verse 10, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Why is it important for Israel to remember it doesn't depend on Israel's efforts? Because all the long hair, it's I, I, I. It doesn't say you or anybody else. I took you. I chose you. I called you. I said you are my servant. I have not rejected you. I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I, yeah. If, if any way that Israel starts to wonder, well, what's our role? They, they only have to look at God saying, it's me. I'm the one doing all this. And also remember what Israel was feeling like at this time. They were fearful. Uh, they were feeling conquered and, and insignificant. So to hear that, that words of comfort, that God in mercy chose them, He's doing it all in grace to save those he has chosen. So comfort for us as well. Uh, all those truths apply to the New Testament church and to us. God, Christ said, I am with you always. I will never forsake you. I will uphold you. Well, and he told their ancestors that time after time after time. You were wandering around out in the wilderness and stuff. All my decrees, I will be with you. Yeah. Other questions, comments as we close on verse up to verse 10 here? All right. Yeah. It's going to keep getting better as we keep seeing more about this servant, more messianic messages. 
Let's close with a, a prayer regarding what we looked at today then. Lord, as you called the nations to, to give testimony, all the idols of this world are silenced before you. They can accomplish nothing. Uh, they topple over and are made to stand by those who put out propaganda to make them stand. But, but your word stands as you foretold the working of your plans. You control all nations. You brought Abraham to be your servant, subdued nations under his descendants. You brought Cyrus as your servant to conquer nations and set the Israelites free. You control history. We know that you fulfilled your faithful plan to do everything to be with us, to rescue us. You have chosen us in mercy and in grace. Let this be our defense, our source of strength and our comfort. Amen. I'm losing my strength. He's got the strength.